Hey, Joe. Yes, Scott? All the signs are right this time. Mm. You don't have to try so very hard. Good. On episode nine of Stealing in the Dan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Uh, yeah, here we are, episode nine, here to talk about track nine off of uh, Can't Buy a Thrill, Change of the Guard. Penultimate track. Yeah. We're almost done with Can't Buy a Thrill. Getting ready to close down the first album. Mm. Uh, additionally, we will be talking about my pick uh, for Change of the Guard, Dinner Rush from 2000 by Bob Giraldi, and Joe's pick uh, from 1970, Zabriskie Point by Michelangelo Antonioni. Mm. I like that little Italian <laughs> stink you put <laughs> on that. Antonioni. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I stumbled across something on the internet the other day. <laughs> I don't know if this is real. Somebody just like posted it on Twitter, but it was a it was a lady like complaining on a forum somewhere, maybe Reddit or something. I think it was Reddit that like her uh, her like significant other had just watched The Irishman and like mm-hmm. was now unceasingly talking in like a New Jersey Italian accent and like <laughs> making up Italian words. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well, this uh, episode it did not occur to me until you said both filmmakers' names. I'm assuming. Bob Giraldi. Yeah. Girardi? Uh, Giraldi. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming he's an Italian American uh, gentleman. And uh, so this will give us plenty of time to test out offensive Italian accents and. Yeah, exactly. um, Throw out all the stereotypes we got. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Italian listeners. (laughs) Really offend all those pasta eating bastards. Uh, Oh, whoa. Hey, (laughs) all right. Too real. Let's reel it in. Your contributions to our culture have been fantastic, <laughs> and they are part of the American experience yeah. just as much as anybody else. Maybe, you know what, even more so than everybody else. Italians are the most American Americans. Italians uberalis. Wait. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, here we are to talk about uh, Change of the Guard before we get to our Italian-American or Italian-Italian filmmakers. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, uh, we are here to talk about Change of the Guard. We just spun it up here in the Oregon Hill Studios. Uh, producer Dakota, I'm going to guess this is the first time you ever heard that song. Absolute first time. What did you think? Um, I thought that it was cool. Mm. I thought there were cool parts to it. Um, I felt like it had a little less soul than some of the songs that I've listened to. Yeah. And I thought that the, like, dissension in the solo was really cool, how it, like, goes, like, all the way down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I, uh, I agree with your assessment that it's got less soul, <laughs> despite being in some ways, like, soul-influenced or, or R&B-influenced, maybe, uh yeah, it's got some soul mechanics, but it doesn't really have a soul feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, this is, uh, as I intimated last time, maybe my least favorite song on the album. Uh, yeah, I, I, I buy that, and I would probably say the same. I was trying to decide, because we talked about, I think when we talked about Dirty Work mm-hmm. being like one of the least Steely Dan, Steely Dan songs, but that one is still about like heartbreak and loss. Mm. So it's like it's 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 tangential to Steely Dan. This one feels like not at all Steely Dan. Yeah, but other than musically, but. yeah. Well, even there, it's it's got a different flavor to it that I I don't know if after this there's anything in the catalog that yeah. that's got kind of the same vibe. 
yeah. uh, which I, I think is a good thing. Uh, well, well, you know who agrees with you? Uh, the the members of Steely Dan, I'm assuming. <laughs> Donald Fagan, at least. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. what what'd you find? Uh, this is my homework. So quickly up top, it's um, uh, uh, Change of the Guard gets mentioned twice in the liner notes for Camp by a Thrill. Uh, the liner notes uh, written by the by the at the time unknown Tristan Fabriani. A.K.A. Donald Fagan. Right. Uh, uh, from the East Coast cynicism of only a fool would say that to the sunstruck L.A. optimism of Change of the Guard. So that's what he said when he was trying to sell this album. Hmm. Uh, and then um, the superlatives commonly found in liner notes are often as empty as the music they applaud. This is not the case on your new Steely Dan album. For example, hear the raw urgency of Jeff Skunk Baxter's solo on Change of the Guard and savor his tasteful utilization of the spinal vibrato. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's again what he said uh, when he was. Um, trying do, you, to, do you know what the spinal vibrato? Is? I don't know. It's I like I. It sounds right, but it also sounds like something. Uh, like, right. is that just an adjective he's using, or is that a technical term? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it, it seems plausible either way, but I want to believe like that's one of those things that Fagan made up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the what was it? The, the the thing that you thought you read the nausea organ. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, not actually in the liner notes, <laughs> <laughs> right? So that's what uh, Donald Fagan said uh, under the alias Tristan Fabriani uh, in 1970. Another uh, Italian American, <laughs> <laughs> another Italian American. They're everywhere. Yeah. They're uh, yeah. Um, but uh, in 2013, he did an interview with uh, Andy Green uh, of Rolling Stone as they were preparing for their Mood Swings tour. Which, uh, funnily enough, that is the tour that I saw them on. Okay. Um, uh, and the, and the, what, what year was this again? 2013? Uh, 2013, yeah. Okay. Um, and the whole premise of the Mood Swing story was that they were, like, um, they were doing whole albums, like, as a piece, like, from track one to, you know. To, uh, different albums each time? Right, or? yeah, a different album each time. What did you see? I saw, I just, like, luckily we got to see Asia. Oh, sweet. Okay, yeah, and, yeah. They, and they played more than that, but that's how they started the show. They okay, started the cool. show by playing an album front to back. Hell yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then they, they did a bunch of stuff. And I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, too. I have, like, the 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 set list from the, the night I saw. It, it was a really good night. They said, like, it was the first time they had done Razor Boy in a long time because, like, they, they couldn't figure out how to arrange it live mm. for some reason. But. It's a song I listened to on the drive over to me. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so in uh, 2013, so they're talking about how they're, you know, preparing all these album uh, albums for the, the shows, uh, and uh, Andy Green, the interviewer, says, but can't buy a thrill one over happen? And Donald Fagan says, uh, that has some songs on it that we really feel probably shouldn't have made the album. It was before our style gelled for a little while. Andy Green, what's uh, what song on that is your least favorite? Donald Fagan, let's see what was on there. Change of the Guard approaches a level of filler. Not that mm. it was intended to be that way. It just Ooh, sounds that way now. I feel very validated. Because <laughs> yeah. it, 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 if anything, it reeks of filler to me. It's not on its own a bad song, but it's not a good Steely Dan song. Right. And it... Even though it it's in conversation with a few different songs on the album in ways that I only have appreciated on this go around, yeah, um, it it really doesn't belong. Uh, it's yeah. the odd man out for sure. Yeah, it definitely feels out of place. Yeah, um, uh, I guess like my tour with this song has been that like yeah, I never really gave this song much thought as I was like listening through, um, and then having like sat down to listen to it for this song, my my first was like yeah, I don't I don't like it. It's not a Steely Dan song. It's not a good fit. Um, and then, like, I think, like, like repeatedly listening to it and then, like, some of the, the research that I've read, like, I can appreciate it musically. Like, so mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've come around on it a little bit. Like, not a ton. I'm still not, like, a huge fan of the song. But now I just kind of, like, ignore the vocals. <laughs> like, I mean, the vocals sound fine. But, like, the lyrics, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not a big fan of. But, um, 
Uh, I just like listen to the guitar solo now. <laughs> yeah, should we should we kind of uh, give people a, a clue into what the the lyrical gist of the song is? Um, yeah, because I mean, what, what did he say? The East Coast cynicism of only a fool can say that in the L.A. optimism, sun soaked L.A. optimism. Yeah, um, I think that that um, putting those in opposition is very appropriate because they feel like. Um, brother and sister songs uh, right yeah um so this this song the idea of it is kind of like the revolution is coming is is how it sounds to me you know yeah in 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 a very sunny optimistic way yeah yeah yeah. um and i guess that raises the question which was the question we had for only a fool um how sincere is is this um, yeah, is this sun-soaked optimism? And like the delivery of the song, it sounds very sincere. But just right. like knowing everything that we know about Donald and Walter, it just like I mean, it it almost feels like a like it just feels commercial, you know? Mm. Yeah, to me, it feels put on. Yeah, when I what I've come to think of the song as is like a mix between Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the street <laughs> yeah. and. Even though I've never seen Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> what I imagine the music and that or like hair would be, where it's like yeah. kind of cashing in on the hippie thing, right? Um, oh, great I, call! I did randomly look up one track from Jesus Christ Superstar, and the yeah. lyrical content was surprisingly similar to. Um, just at random, I picked one, and it was I. I can look up which song it was, but yeah. It was something like "What's happening," you know, or uh, uh, was it "What's the buzz"? Yes, it was. I used, uh, I love that song because like I used to listen to this radio show up in out of DC, Don and Mike on uh, 106.7 WGFK, um, which is now a sports talk station. Um, but uh, their newsman's name was Buzz, and so like his theme music was "What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the buzz? Tell yeah. me what's happening." Yeah. yeah. Um, You've already beaten. Like I prepared my. Uh, this is the best song that Blank never wrote, but I didn't feel good about any of my answers, and like those two are already better. What What was your answer? Just uh, uh, what did I put? Oh, I said Billy Joel or Chicago. Okay, yeah, it does have a, kind of a generic, um, a generic ring to it. Yeah, um, like there's not a whole lot of personality in right. the music, with maybe one or two notable exceptions, which right. we we'll get to. Um, I do think listening to it more as complicated my view of it as um, kind of the optimistic, uh, uh, corny, uh, like, standout track on the album. Yeah. Not standout in the sense that, wow, this is an outstanding track, but it doesn't belong. Right. Um, Because this, I'll, I'm going to read the first verse here or part of it because there's a turn that kind of hit me this time. Uh, if you listen, you can hear it. It's the laughter in the street. It's the motion in the music and the fire beneath your feet. All the signs are right this time. And here's the turn for me. You don't have to try so very hard. Um, which I I take that as kind of like, the revolution's just going to happen. You hippies don't have to work for it. You know, like, yeah. we don't we don't actually have to get all riled up in the streets like it's just gonna happen it's like cultural it's it's just it's the feeling man it's the vibe of the time it's evolution. Um, yeah it's, it's inevitable 
So I kind of can see a reading of this as making fun of hippies, especially this came out in 72, so it's a little late to be cashing in on on uh, on kind of yeah. the 60s. Flower power. Yeah. Um, unless, and you know, I don't know how early they wrote this song, but... Um, yeah, I was going to say, this does sound like one of those things that like maybe left over from like when they were trying to make it as songwriters. Yeah. They could have given this to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> they should have given wow, that would have been that, it. May have been a better song, honestly. <laughs> yeah, like, but there are a couple other things. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's funny. I mean, like you said, like because well, there's that the that the yeah the end of um, chorus one. All the signs are right this time. You don't have to try so very hard. And then in chorus two. Uh, if you want to get through the years, it's high time you played your card. Yeah. So that's like a different. Yeah. It is funny, though. Like this whole song, it does seem like whoever the the protagonist of this song is or whatever is like it feels like they're lecturing somebody. Mm, yeah. Uh, that play your card, it struck me uh, kind of harkens back to do it again. Yeah. Uh, the the I think the last verse in that song, the uh, in the land of milk and honey, you're going to have to put your cards on the table. Right. I couldn't quite. I don't know that there's a strong thematic link there other than we're using cards again. Right. Because um, in this case, they're um, – I'm trying to remember back to our read on Do It Again, but there it's kind of like you're inherently sinful, just you're, you might as well be right. open about it. Yeah. Here it's more like – because it comes in the context of like asking your the cowboys, the kind of I, – I take it as the right-wingers yeah. um, to – to recognize that they're wrong, um, <laughs> yeah. which also seems like hippie bullshit to me. I don't know, and this if that's too modern a reading of like uh, kind of the moderate stance of if we just appeal to their reason and their decency, right. they'll they'll put down their guns. Um, yeah. The, what's the line here? It's they he, they ask them to swallow their pride, and then it says. Uh, yeah. Take your guns off if you're willing, <laughs> and you know we're on your side. Hey, we're yeah. with you. Yeah, hey. it's by like this appeal to like bipartisanship or something. That yeah. could be just the garbage of 2019 junking up my brain. But... <laughs> it's made us all cynical. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I no longer take this as sincere uh, or totally sincere. Right. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, it's just weird. I mean, it just it feels like such an affectation for the band. Like even on Can't Buy a Thrill where they hadn't really like settled into like their like dark funk. Yeah. But even already this doesn't this just it seems like a totally different band. Yeah, it it really does. Yeah. Um I mean, of course Fagan's voice, it's hard to mistake for anybody else's. Yeah. And I'll I'm going to say something nice about uh David Palmer here. Uh, he does background vocals on this, and you barely can hear him. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> great job! He's he's doing he he's supporting in the best sense, yeah. yeah where you uh, don't really realize he's there until you read it in the liner notes. Yeah, um, and Fagan, I think like they either he doubled his vocal or it's just like heavily affected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's at least doubled. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, the other thing I found on this, um, uh, there's a site called Something Else Reviews done by S. Victor Aaron. He's a mm, guy that seems yeah. to review a lot of jazz records. Um, mm. But um, I think he was doing like Steely Dan Sundays for a while, where like every Sunday he would pick a Steely Dan song. Uh, so from May 11, 2011, uh, this is what he wrote about uh, G. 
change of the guard. Skunk Baxter was hired by Steely Dan to play guitar solos, and even though he didn't get to do so on the album's two hit singles, he's shown elsewhere he's plenty qualified for the job. The author of many memorable leads that came later for Steely Dan, and afterwards for the Doobie Brothers on songs like Take Me In Your Arms, he's all over change of the guard. The results provide a good glimpse of Baxter's ability to jump headfirst into his part, put out sharp, piercing phrases that never sound hackneyed, and then cleanly end it with some sort of a punctuation mark, in this case by scraping the strings. Like Steve Lukather, he's on that 10 all-time great session guitarist list that get Gibson Guitars put out, and for good reason. Yeah. Uh, that, that I think, to the extent that the song it does have a personality of its own, it's the the Scott Baxter solo. In right. It. Like um, any Scott Baxter solo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but I, I go back to Dirty Work, where that sax solo, it's like, does this really... This is a good sax solo, but does it belong here? Here, right, yeah. It's like the guitar solo has like kind of this uh, like stinging, kind of nasty tone to it. Yeah. Um, that could undercut the song, or or it's like, is this the real revolutionary spirit? Like, yeah. uh, as contrasted to the song's kind of lukewarm revolutionary spirit um yeah it's definitely the edgiest thing about the song yeah but i don't know that i that's like it feels like a stretch to hear it that way i don't know yeah um it's funny when i go looking for like other people talking about steely dan songs and i I guess this makes all the sense of the world but like everybody else engages with the music much more than they engage with the lyrics mm. which actually makes me feel good because it's like you know, you have those long dark nights of the soul and you say like, you know, who, why, like, why does this world require two white guys talking into microphones? Like, why does it require my iteration of that? But it's like, I do, I just don't see a lot of people like talking about like the themes of Steely Dan a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would be interested if, if any listeners are, uh, out there who really love this song or would count this as one of their favorite Steely Dan songs. I would love, like, if you email us, we'll read the letter. For sure. Uh, sometime in the <laughs> future. Uh, yeah, it's going to be weird because you're going to hear this, like, probably a month or so after we record it, but uh, we'll get there. But we would love to hear a full-throated defense of this song, or I would, at For least. Sure, yeah. uh, uh, because it, it just seems so... I mean, Dirty Work, I could get that being somebody's favorite Steely Dan song, especially mm-hmm. if they're not big steely dan fans right but even a casual steely dan fan i can't see them being like reaching for change of the guard of of anything else you know yeah um, and i can't think of many other songs like any other song on the album if you're like yeah i really this is one of my favorite steely dan songs except for maybe brooklyn knows the charmer mm. or something um although i saw in a lot of comment sections when we did that one that people really fucking love that song yeah um yeah it's true uh, yeah, it's like the soft rock weirdos. Like mm-hmm. soft rock fans really like that song because yeah, it's a pretty good soft rock song. It, it's in the the ways that it's um, displeasing to me. I can see it being pleasing to right. people. Like Why, the, that would be somebody else's cup of tea. Yeah, where it's like, oh, that's just they like those quirks, you know, right. those imperfections. Um, yeah, this song there aren't really quirks and imperfections except for the the skunk solo. Yeah, yeah. Um, now there's a great quote from Dinner Rush that's very appropriate for this song. Yeah, do you want to transition into that? Do you have anything else to say about the song? No, uh, I'm good, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm tapped out. Oh, <laughs> uh, wait, wait. Yes, I'm tapped out. <laughs> Perfect. 
Um, yeah, so my pick for this song was uh, Dinner Rush, a film from 2000. Um, it's funny, like, uh, I mean, just like in terms of like getting my hands on it, like we had to buy copies of this, like DVDs, mm-hmm. because like that's the, it's not available streaming anywhere. It's not available on iTunes or anything like that. Um, but the DVD was like $5. So it's like one of those movies that just like never got that big of a push. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another one of those movies where I was either, again, I was either in North Carolina or in Okinawa and my dad would periodically like send me all the mail that had accumulated at the house. Uh, and he usually sent me a DVD, uh, at the same time. And it was always weird stuff, but, and this was one of them. Um, so I saw it probably somewhere around the time that it hit the DVD market, um, in the early two thousands. Um, and I don't know. I just, I've always been a big fan of this movie. It's one of those ones I reach for. And like a lot of people haven't seen it. Although like talking to my film nerd friends, um, most people have heard of it and it always gets mentioned like, um, in the same conversation as big night as like one of the good, um, film, uh, uh, food films. Yeah. One of the films that gets food, right? Yeah. I, I was kind of, it's, I don't say this as like a, brag it's and if i was saying it as a brag it'd be kind of sad but <laughs> it's not often that i somebody puts a movie in front of me that i haven't at least heard of or have some sort of context for like yeah. I, I i feel like i know what's out there in general and unless it's like oh this is this bollywood movie or something right, like right. um this came out around the time that i was paying attention to movies already yeah um, and I had never heard of it. Oh, and, really? Yeah, so I went in totally blind, except for Scott kindly bought me the DVD and had <laughs> it sent to my house. And uh, I briefly saw the cover, and I didn't even... This is what my impressions were. I knew, you, because you had said Danny Aiello was in it. Yeah. And the cover of the DVD is, you know, it's kind of a... It's obvious they didn't have put a lot of budget into it. So it's got kind of like a knockoff Sopranos look to it. Yeah. So I was expecting like a DTV Gabagool movie or something, <laughs> you know, where with Danny Aiello as kind of the Tony Soprano. And then I briefly looked at the back of the movie and uh, Sandra Bernhardt, who I really like, yeah. was on the back. But for whatever reason, she looked like Mick Jagger to me. So I was like, <laughs> That's a good so I was like is Mick Jagger in this fucking movie? <laughs> uh, and, and then I just kind of put the box down and was like, I'm going to go in knowing nothing. Yeah. Uh, but and this is not a knock on you expecting it to be kind of um, kind of like a, a cash in on the Sopranos craze or something okay. not like not something um, with kind of the complexity and uh, character and specificity of this. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it sounds like you liked it at least, at least oh, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I did like it. Cool. Um, yeah, and then just for anybody else, so for anybody else that hasn't seen it, um, it just like loosely, it is set in a hip New York restaurant. Uh, it, it seems like it's a, a New York restaurant that has recently become very hip. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's Danny Aiello is the owner of the restaurant. He used to be the proprietor with his wife, and his wife was the, the chef. Um, and now his son, who he and his wife have put through culinary school, is like the hotshot chef. Um, but Danny Aiello is still the owner, and there's this tension between like the son wanting to take it. It's I mean, it's, and his someday, wife is his wife is dead, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and like so someday the restaurant is going to be completely handed over to the son, but it, we're not there yet. Um, so there's that tension. Um, and it, and the whole thing takes place in one night at the restaurant. I guess, yeah. and there's like a brief opening where you see a guy walking, an older gentleman walking a young girl to school, like presumably his granddaughter. Um. 
and then a car starts following him and he like hands his daughter off to one of the other parents he sees like another parent walking uh, her daughter to school uh, hands the hands the uh, hands the little girl off and then starts running away from the car and then the car follows him and uh, he gets shot dead mm-hmm. yeah um, and then the opening credits roll and Danny Aiello is like in conversation with some other guys in a restaurant mm-hmm. um, uh, and then the, it's it's like a night in the restaurant yeah 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 and and um, I guess the restaurant is the the director's actual restaurant, right? Oh, does that? I I don't know. I know the the director is a restaurateur. Like he, I think he's at least one, and I think a couple of restaurants. If I'm correct, and my research is that I didn't really do any research, <laughs> I believe that this is filmed in one of his restaurants. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, which it really does have a great sense of place. Mm-hmm. Um, like you really do get the sense of the inner workings of the restaurant. There's a lot of characters, yeah, and it's kind of crazy to me. I kept waiting for the balance between the characters, like something to go off and go wrong, yeah, because it's it's very well oiled and and yeah. really balanced and bounces around to everybody in a really interesting way, mm-hmm. uh, and gets a lot done very efficiently, yeah. Um, which I was absolutely not expecting at all, yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's the same thing. Right? It's like I don't know that it's the most interesting or thought provoking movie in the world, but it's like you said. It's like I mean, I think of it. It's like kind of like Brick. It's like a style exercise, but like just masterfully done. Hmm. It's weird. Like some, it, like some parts, it shows its budget, or you know, like it's 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 small scale. Um, like the music, I think, is like all kind of really out of place. The music is. Is what dates it the most yeah. and what what feels the most off about it, but and the opening credits are like this really weird, slick kind of, mm. yeah, yeah. It's like I don't know. It's, it's going for this like weird futuristic thing that looks very dated now. Uh, but other than that, right? Like it's just like set in a restaurant and uh, um, yeah. So I mean, like you know, I was always uh, like when I was like a, a budding food enthusiast. Like I think this was like part of like me developing my interest in food and like my oh, yeah, sort of like see that fascination with restaurant kitchens, you know? Yeah. It, it really goes behind the, the scenes of the food and kind of the changing food culture in New York at the time. Right. Um, uh, th- I'm assuming like, I'm interested in why you picked this with the song. Like oh, I have my guess, but, yeah. uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's, I mean, it, like to me, it's almost on the nose. There's like two things. There's the, like the the restaurant changing from like a family Italian traditional Italian restaurant, which is seemingly what it was when Danny Aiello and his wife were running it, to this like hip uh, boutique eatery that's mm-hmm. like impossible to get a reservation. Yeah, there's that, and like you know they like like very concretely talk about that in the movie, and then the other one is Danny Aiello. Like it's never clear he's some sort of <laughs> he's either just a bookie or he's like tied up in the mob. He, yeah, he, and it's like I, the movie is like purposely ambiguous about. I like, he claims he's just a bookie. Yeah, but it's and everybody else thinks he's in the mafia. He's like three quarters legit or something. Like it's like he's almost a legitimate businessman, but right. there's a connection to kind of the seedy, yeah, underbelly. He he says at one point, "I've never killed anybody," right? Um, Which seems legit. Yeah, yeah, but. You get the idea that there's, you know, there's there's some stuff going on behind the scenes. I, t- I took them as like a, 
that he's telling as, the truth as connected or oh no uh, no that, that, uh, he's, yeah, that he is yeah. in the mafia was it right because i was like either way i mean because like what would make you think that he's in the mafia is that he's certainly very aware of the mafia and like comfortable dealing with those types and like one of the big like points of tension in the movie is that there are these two young mobsters that are trying to essentially like muscle into him muscle him into giving him giving them a percentage of the restaurant they're right. like he's going to give them his book as a bookie but um they want a piece of the restaurant too and he's like happy to give them the book mm-hmm. to get him off of his case but like he doesn't want to give them the restaurant or a piece of the restaurant yeah and that's the other change in the, like the opening of the movie when he's sitting around the table with his buddies, they're talking about like how like mob like young mobsters these days have ridiculous nicknames like Black and Blue, the characters that we meet later in the movie, mm-hmm. and how like you know it, back in back in the day it used to be like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, the food change of the guard that you're mentioning is kind of uh, highlighted by the two guys in the kitchen. The, his son, who's the kind of uh, hot shot. Like what's what's the meal he makes for Sandra Bernhardt? He's like a restaurant critic. Uh, yeah. The, uh, he, like the imp- lobster. And- yeah, he improvises like lobster spaghetti with a champagne, a vanilla champagne sauce. Champagne yeah, vanilla sauce. And it's like the presentation is beautiful. Yeah, he deep fries spaghetti as like a centerpiece. Yeah. Um, whereas like Danny Aiello is like, I just want sausage and peppers. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a guy, another guy in the kitchen, Duncan, who's yep. a you know a gambling the- addict, and he's right. He, another source of tension. He's yeah. into the he's into black and blue for money from gambling. Yeah, and he's fucking around with the the other chef, the head chef's girl. Yeah, and, who, uh, who's the ho- hostess? Yeah, and uh, but he's like the guy who has the roots, the traditional roots. Uh, the he he brings in sausage. Uh, well, and, yeah, he's the sous chef, and he's a good cook. He's like mm-hmm. the one guy that's, or not the one guy, but he's like capable of executing the other guy's vision. Mm-hmm. But right, he's the guy that humors because they don't make any of the food that Daniela wants to eat anymore. But Duncan will make it for him. Yeah, and there's, I tried to. I mean, I think we can like. Is the movie kind of about New York changing overall? Um, I think that there's a. I would have to see it again to like totally look at this reading, but like, um, there's something about. There's a character in the movie who's uh, John Corbett from yeah. Sex and the City. Um, uh, to me, he will always be John Corbett from uh, uh, Northern Exposure, but yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Generation gap, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, Sex and the City is certainly his more relevant credit. That'll be the yeah. number one forever. Yeah, uh, but he's he's sitting at the bar the whole time, and you're like, something's going to happen with this guy. To me, what ends up happening, not very surprising necessarily. But, oh, really? But satisfying yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's he uh, enigmatically says he works for Wall Street, and I think yep. that that's not just a line. I think he actually does I work know. on Wall Street, yeah, um, and not just what ends up happening with him, right? Um, yeah, I think that yeah, that, that to me like that is a funny joke. But there there's something in the movie about kind of the change from like kind of a. Um, like the old way of doing things to something more sleek and sophisticated, but maybe there's the suggestion, and maybe it's just Annie Aiello's nostalgia that that there's something maybe uh, I don't want to say soulless about about this change, but something less substantial about it. Um, 
it, it's weird, like kind of the, the way we used to do things versus this kind of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but where you know the legitimate businessmen are also immoral yeah. um, and maybe more immoral and more efficient. And uh, I don't know. There was something to me about. Um, I don't know. You could re. You could find a somebody could mount a compelling case that this is about New York, the way New York has changed. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like you said, like he, like Bob Giraldi is a restaurateur. Mm-hmm. And it's like this is the this is like at least the story of a restaurant's you know uh, journey in in New York. And it's in, is it in Tribeca too, yeah. which is a kind of an invented neighborhood, right? right. Um, yeah, I forget. No, Tribeca is like it's like a it's smashing up of three things. Try B and yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, like it's like like Dumbo is down under Manhattan Bridge overpass. Mm-hmm. Tribeca is like three different things. But um, the triangle below Canal Street, also known as Tribeca, is a popular area known for its old industrial buildings and cobblestone streets that are lined with trendy boutiques and restaurants. The weekends are quiet and the Tribeca Film Festival takes place here every spring. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like it's the story of a restaurant, so it's probably it's at least representative of like what happened to the restaurant scene in Manhattan, which has probably got to be representative of like right what what's happened in New York. Like it's gone from like a you know the, you got this restaurant that used to be like a traditional neighborhood place with regulars that served you know hearty familiar food, and now has become this sleek hip thing. Yeah, it's the, like the character. I mean, John Corbett's character you mentioned, like he he has a line. He's talking to the bartender at some point, and he says he some sort of expressing like the discomfort with being. He's like, this isn't the kind of place I would normally go. And he says, he says, when did dinner become a Broadway show? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I there and there's just there's so many uh, like good kind of side characters. I mean, there's the there, art critic. <laughs> the, the art critic uh, played by uh, Mark Margulis. Is that his name? Yeah, the guy who the, the guy from Breaking Bad who was um, South Lamakia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah he's. Sandra Van Hart, who you mentioned. Yeah, just um, who I, you know, I watched King of Comedy again recently, so I've, I've had her on my mind a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, as, as a weird, horny uh, restaurant <laughs> critic. <laughs> It goes without. She's she's incapable of playing somebody who's not horny, um, <laughs> right? Um, but then, yeah, then the, the like her friend who's with her, who's referred to as the food nymph. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, the the bartender who knows all the trivia. Yeah. Um, the waitress who's also well, I don't know if that's a spoiler. It kind of is, I okay. guess. Well, I mean, we we spoil every movie we talk about. Yeah, exactly. We tell you the we tell you the, the week before. To watch these movies. Yeah, so, so if them. you don't, it's on you, bro. <laughs> $5 on Amazon. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, played by Summer Phoenix. She's, yeah. she's, the whole time the art critic is talking about, he's sitting with all these uh, very chic painters, and they're talking Some about Greek the- guy that he's hosting. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're looking at the art in the restaurant and, like, critiquing it and uh, having, you know, this kind of philosophical conversation about the nature of art, and yep. the waitress keeps popping in, and then it's revealed that she's the painter of the paintings and everything, the dynamic shifts. Yep. Um, yeah, he is the great... One of my favorite quotes, like, again, I, I love quotable movies, and this movie's so quotable to me. Uh, but yeah, he has the great line... Um, <clears throat> the, the artist is talking about the paintings, and he says, you look at paintings in restaurants? Do you, uh, do you look at cheese trays at galleries? 
I can answer that question for me, and of course I look at fucking cheese trays (laughs) and galleries. Yeah, yeah. Snacks, dude. Yeah, I love a snack. I love art and snacks. That's what I'm all about. But yeah, I mean his I mean his character is just delightfully insufferable. Yeah. Like from the moment he shows up. Yeah. Um and he really like yeah, it's funny. Like th- those guys, like they all get a turn. Like Sandra Bernhardt gets to really ham it up, and he gets to really ham it up. But it's like totally works. Yeah, it's it. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that could feel very writerly. Yeah, but it's all handled so well that it doesn't. Right. Like it's it. There's sometimes a fine line between like well written and like the writer is jerking off a little bit. Yeah. Um. And this is. See also who's the guy that does Dawson's Creek. See also uh, oh Kevin Williamson. Yeah, see, yeah. See also Kevin Williamson. See also Aaron um, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, this it, yeah. There's Which is all stuff I love. By the way, like I I know that stuff is overridden and I enjoy it. There's something about like, and I I don't have the screenwriters for this in front of me. I think it's uh, a couple people. Yeah. And I was trying to see what else they had done, and it wasn't anything that I had seen or whatnot. But right. Um, there's something like about, oh, like these characters represent two viewpoints that, that can be very like, oh, the writer is just wants to talk about the ideas of the movie without uh, exploring them. Right. Um, like organically. Yeah. Um, or like, ooh, look at these colorful characters, the bartender who knows trivia or whatever. But the movie is so well made and so well performed and calibrated mm-hmm. that all of that stuff feels necessary and it feels like actual color instead of like fake color right um so i really appreciated that uh yeah and the fact that like it really does feel like this is a like this is a restaurant this is what's happening it's a chaotic night and you get that sense of it um Mm -hmm. without anything getting sloppy right Uh, it's yeah. I was I was impressed by Dinner Rush. Oh, cool! I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a fun one. I'm just gonna bust through my quotes as opposed to like all my notes. But yeah, these are like all my favorite uh, uh, quotes. The one I the, like my favorite part of like the whole cooking thing is like we first meet the star chef and he goes downstairs uh, and uh, <laughs> one guy is doing prep work and he says, "What are you doing?" And he says, "Cutting chives, chefs." And he goes, "No, you're not. These are snowflakes. Chives are identical. Here, let me show you." Uh, he's saying like the guy's like he's not doing like a precise chop on the on the chives and he goes let me show you and then he grabs a knife and starts cutting he goes this knife is dull is this your knife you're fired this kitchen will not be a halfway house <laughs> so good <laughs> uh, but yeah I, I still say like these are snowflakes chives are identical and that's that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about where it's like we need to introduce the chef yep. as an egomaniac yep. and a perfectionist. And it does that. That's his intro right there is that line. And you got everything you need to know, but it's it's still got enough personality where it's not too clean. Yeah. 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 So good. Uh, when did eating dinner become a Broadway show? You look at paintings at restaurants. You look at cheese trays at galleries. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sandra Bernhardt. <laughs> Two, like, real close. Together. I don't even remember what her friend said, but she goes, honey, a little louder and we'll dance to it. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, the next a line one. that might have been improvised yeah. on her part. <laughs> and the next one just, oh, Christ, more champagne. Oh, yeah, because they're waiting on their food forever. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that's uh, really good. And then, OK, yeah. So we were talking about Change of the Guard. And I was saying there's a quote from this movie that is very appropriate to Change of the Guard. There's one a friend of mine, uh, Ben, and I say to each other all the time. No, I wouldn't say hate. Hate implies passion, which is something these paintings leave me strangely without. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's the wow. Yeah, that that is how I feel about change of the guard. <laughs> that is like the most withering fucking comment I've ever heard in my mm-hmm. life. Yeah, uh, and then uh, only in New York can you count on a double murder to triple your business. And then uh, yeah, I think a little hint of what happens in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I think maybe like one of the last lines of the movie. Uh, he's a cool guy. Works on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a real cool guy working on Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's too late in the game to introduce a new segment, but uh, no, not at all. I think something that I'm interested in is is it Dan deep down? Like, is the oh. thing we picked beyond its superficial right. um, connection to the song at hand? Mm-hmm. Does it jive with the? Like, can we create a turn? Like, like in referring to like the? Does this fit as like a? Um, as like an accompanying piece in the Dan Canon or the Danon. Yeah. Uh, yes. Which is, is unfortunately is this, a brand of yogurt, but I still want to stick with calling it the Danon. <laughs> is this is this a uh, f- as as you wrote in our description uh, a fellow traveler right. in the Steely Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do, don't know. do you think Dinner Rush? Fits? I mean, it's it's not like an easy fit. It's okay. got like a world weary cynicism to it, but it's still very hopeful. Okay, and like. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just think about like the scenes with the granddaughter, and like there is like one scene that's like very well done, but it's also kind of sappy. Where like, um, 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 Danny Aiello is talking to the daughter of his partner who got killed, and at the same time, uh, Duncan is talking to the hostess, and they're mm. both kind of like opening their hearts. Yeah, and I'm like that doesn't feel very Dan. <laughs> yeah, I I'm gonna say that this does feel Steely Dan for me, and yeah. one thing it's the New York connection and kind yeah. of the feeling of like. It's got the New York vibe. True. Yeah. Um, I think like the characters, like Sandra Bernhardt's character, yeah. uh, the gambling guy, uh, like all of these characters could be Steely Dan characters. Mm-hmm. The art critic. Um, the cop is like the weak part of the movie for me. Oh yeah, it, yeah. He the kind of feels feels wheeled in, yeah. but uh, uh, as like a plot device almost either that or bob geraldo just hates cops yeah like that's what he thinks of them (laughs) because that guy's just like i don't i mean at least based on that performance like it's the worst performance of the movie yeah and and i think like uh the details the kind of specific little things that it picks up on there's something that i think that's something steely dan does too where it it kind of highlights these uh like pointillist kind of yeah. yeah um so i'm i'm gonna vote that this is uh, Steely Dan friendly. If you're a Steely Dan fan, you'll probably like Dinner Rush. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't kick it out. I would say, I guess I would like nervously not confidently nominate it. And then if I got some votes, I'd be like, yeah, right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one more thing that I want to mention before we move on yeah. is that what this director is most famous for besides his being a restaurant critic or a, a restaurateur yeah. is uh, he directed the Michael Jackson video for Beat It. Oh, really? Yeah. Holy crap, I did not know that. Yeah, so I that's like I was like what else has this guy done? That's and funny. that's yeah. uh that's his big claim to fame. Um And what, yeah, Beat It is like the Yeah, Beat It's the crazy one with the knife fight. Yeah. 
Eddie Van Halen was supposed to be in the music because Eddie Van Halen plays the guitar solo Mm -hmm. and he was supposed to be in the music video, but he changed his mind because somebody told him that song was going to be a flop. That's my favorite story about (laughs) it. Yeah, it sure was. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie Van Halen, very good guitar player, not the best at like the music business. Yeah, but that I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's great. uh, Yeah, I was. I I I didn't. I spent like thirty seconds trying to figure out what Bob Giraldi had done, and it's like, yeah, just like he directed like a couple other things. Yeah. And you would think that him setting a movie in his own restaurant or something like this yeah. is going to be a vanity project, but it really doesn't have that feel at all. It feels like a passion project, not like right. Uh, look how cool my restaurant is. Um, yeah, it reminds me of those like super confident like TV, the competent like TV directors that are just like mm. really good storytellers. That's that's an excellent way to kind of, like. I don't want to oversell this as like this is you know masterpiece cinema, but right. it is like. Yeah, it's like an extremely competent and and uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like I mean, Jesus Christ, these days, like finding a good movie that's a tight ninety—that's like a unicorn. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this it's like flipping through Netflix these days, you're like two hours, two and a half hours. Like God, nobody can get it done in ninety minutes. Yeah, I I have mixed feelings on the. This is tangential, but I think it's worth getting into. <laughs> I have mixed feelings about. There's like this very the. People being like, wow, why movies should be 89 minutes or no longer like, yeah, I, I love a long uh, novelistic sure. indulgent movie um, when it's done right. Yeah. Well, I don't think they should all be 90. I just think it's I mean, it used to be that they were all 90 because and right for like for gross commercial reasons. But like now it's just like nobody does it. And I'm like, yeah. they shouldn't all be 90, but it would be nice to have some. <laughs> there, There is a, a bagginess in storytelling now where it's it's yeah, it's too much. Yeah. But yeah, this is the kind of movie and this will again sound like a backhanded compliment, but it's not. Yeah. This is I was like, I'm going to I'm going to let my dad borrow this DVD because yeah. it feels like. You know, he's always grumbling about how there's no good movies to watch. I was like, yeah. have you seen Dinner Rush yet? Yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And well done, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for introducing yeah. me to Dinner Rush, Scott. Th- yeah. th- thanks for, the, to, to, to quote, uh, I think you should, one of my favorite, I think you should leave sketches. Thanks for thinking that they are cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Should we talk about Zabriskie Point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a ride. <laughs> Yeah. I, I had almost the same experience in that I didn't. I think I had heard the name of this, and I know Antonioni, but like I like before you said this, I don't even know that I could name an Antonio. Like I knew of, I knew about Blow Up, but I didn't know it was his movie. Right? Um, yeah, never seen an Antonioni movie. Um, yeah, heard his name uh, thrown around. So yeah, and I tried to like avoid everything that I could, and then just watch the movie. Yeah, that would be an interesting way to go in on this one, I think. It was a uh, lot of fun, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, as Scott said, this is Michelangelo Antonioni, who um, I guess he's less in vogue now, but in the 60s he was one of the big uh, European modernist art house directors mm-hmm. that got imported to America, that American audiences were... There was a time when these films would be discussed and were cultural, um, were cultural moments, I guess, yeah. uh, which uh, that time has seemingly passed. Although I, I don't know, there there are reasons to be hopeful about today's movie culture, uh, yeah. just as there are reasons to feel like nothing's ever going to get good again. <laughs> right? Um, but uh, yeah, so this he would have been like 
up there with like Godard, Bergman, Fellini. Like those were kind of the big names uh, in European uh, film at the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, he started with La Ventura. Well, he did some earlier stuff that's kind of more neo-realist, but he did La, La Ventura, which is kind of his uh, like signature film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after making films in Italy for a while, he does Blow Up, which is probably if people have seen one movie by him today, it's probably that one. It's also one of the movies my dad sent me on DVD. Yeah, which I just never watched. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's very good. I know it's, um, right here, yeah. it's it's very good and. Much less, um, much less divisive than the one we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> yeah. So he makes this movie in in England, uh, and it's you know set in the swinging sixties, London, and it's a hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a hit in America. And then uh, Antonioni comes to America, and he and he makes a Brisky Point, which is it's I think its reputation has been rehabilitated over time somewhat, but at the time considered a huge flop. Yeah. It's him trying to understand the counterculture, and it shows how far out of out of his depth depth he is. Yeah, it's pretentious. It's <laughs> uh, its politics are incoherent. It's corny. The actors are bad. <laughs> um, all of which I think kind of misses the point, but I understand why people would think that. I guess. Yeah. Um, it starts on a campus, kind of a. Uh, very fragmented and documentary feel as we watch kind of the student leftists arguing about tactics and strategy and, mm-hmm. you know, how to overturn the bourgeoisie. Um, and there's one there's one guy there. It's this actor, Mark Frechette, yeah. um, who's got – we'll get into his backstory later. Yeah. Uh, he's an interesting guy. Um, but he's kind of like the James Dean outsider. Yeah. You know, he's like – you know, kind of like fuck all this talk. Let's let's actually do something. And he kind of storms out of the the meeting. Literally, his first line in the movie, like as they're having all these uh, arguments, somebody says, "I can't." Read. Somebody says, "Like, are you willing to die for the cause or something like that?" And he says, "I'm willing to die for the movement, but not of boredom." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, you get the sense that, and this kind of will get, goes into his background a little bit too. You get the sense that this guy wants to get involved with the revolution because he wants to die <laughs> like he just he wants to he wants to be be violent and he's got yeah. so much rage yeah. um not that any of this is communicated by the performance necessarily right. uh, um but he eventually uh a cop there's a protest on campus a cop is killed and it's left somewhat ambiguous as to whether or not he killed the cop right um and he flees. He steals an airplane, and uh, as he's flying over, we we uh, he connects with the other character we've been introduced with, which is a, a woman played by uh, Dennis Hopper's future wife, Daria Hal- Halperin. I think her name is Halperin. Yeah, yep. yeah. And uh, she's like kind of a flower child who's picking up temp work at this real estate office, and uh, um. She's going out to the desert for this uh, new development that's being built, and he flies over her with the airplane, and they have a weird—I guess you could call it a meet cute—sort uh, <laughs> of like a really silly, like um, meet cute, where he's just fl- like flying an airplane over her car over and over again. Yeah. Um, 
I wrote that that was that, that must have been the 1960s version of sliding into her DMs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you buzz her car with a with a uh, a prop plane. Yeah, and then uh, they go and they hang out in Zabriskie Point in the desert. <laughs> yeah, um, where they have. <laughs> if the movie is famous for two things, it's the sequence uh, where they are making love in the desert. Yeah. And an experimental theater troupe <laughs> has an orgy and a beautifully shot orgy in the desert yeah. to a Jerry Garcia guitar solo. Yep. Um, and then, you know, they have to return to civilization and mm-hmm. things don't go well. <laughs> um, I think that's probably clues people in enough uh, to what what the general gist of Zabriskie Point is. Yeah. Um, what, what was your... What were your thoughts? What? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was, yeah, definitely like um, at the end of it, I was like, man, what did I just watch? Um, and it's like, yeah, it's like beautifully shot. Yeah, the acting is like pretty wooden. And it seems like all of the dialogue is 80 yard. Very possibly. I yeah. think that in, I know in Italy, a lot of the Italian movies made at that time. Like just like standard practice. Yeah, everything was 80 yard. So right. like if you watch eight and a half or like, anything made in Italy uh, in the 60s, the actor's mouth's moving and something, you know, the words are different coming yeah, out yeah. of their mouth. Um, uh, yeah, b- beautifully shot. Um, like, some of it is, like, so on the nose that even I got it without having <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, to yeah. like, Google it. Like, at some point, you start to realize, like, oh, wow, this is a lot of pointed shots of advertisements and signage yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was like, oh, I get it. He's saying something about, like, commercialism, you know, like like the noise pollution of all this commercialization. And then, like, I was reading, like, one of the reviews was like, yeah, for fuck's sake, Antonioni, we get it. Yeah. And I was like, well. There's a, yeah, that scene where they're driving the two hippies or the the man hippie, Mark Frechette, is yeah. driving around with a buddy of his and they're, it's like this really violently edited sequence yeah. of like them going by billboards and Coca-Cola signs and it turns into this kind of crazy collage, mm-hmm. um, which I think is something that Antonioni has done in other films. Like it's uh, something he returns to a lot is kind of the noise of the modern world but yeah uh, it's and it's very pointy because it's like everything has some sort of brand or logo or signage on it mm-hmm. uh, the, like the trucks and the buses and like every yeah and like all the billboards and stuff um yeah and then right like the, it's like very frenetic handheld like documentary style when they're in the city and then when they go to zabriskie point like everything's locked down mm-hmm. super long shots the smooth pans yeah um stuff like that it's yeah i mean it's certainly a beautiful film um <laughs> it's funny. It's like a lot of the stuff he hates, like that commercial real estate office and like mm-hmm. that house. Mm-hmm. I was like, I really, I really like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he, beautiful like mid-century modern spaces. I think you know, I've I've seen a few of his movies, and I think throughout his career, he kind of he has a very love hate relationship with kind of modern architecture. Yeah. Um, he's a really like, but he also loves landscapes, right. which I think this film you obviously get some really great landscape shots especially in the desert orgy scene yeah um but uh yeah i don't know that i could map out the politics of it cleanly yeah like other than because it doesn't seem like in that opening scene he's down with the student radicals like he's interested in them but um something in the editing style makes me think like oh this is too disconnected and too like they're they're never really going to come together. 
Right. Um, and it seems like what he values is kind of this, I don't know if you want to say like Garden of Eden uh, <laughs> moment where, between the two lovers in the desert, like that individual connection. Right. Uh, in contrast to the chaos of the modern world and, and how that that moment of purity gets corrupted by the the systems of capitalism or whatever right. um, it makes sense more intuitively than like yeah um, logically right um, but all of this culminates in one of what I would say one of the great endings in cinema for sure which we're there's no spoiling it really like I kind of knew about it before I saw it but basically after the young man is gunned down by the police uh, upon returning with an airplane that's been painted <laughs> like paisley colors yeah um, the woman goes out to this real estate development where like creep boss uh, has built yeah and uh, she imagines it uh, exploding yeah. in a like five minute sequence of just slow motion shots of consumer goods blasted into smithereens yeah uh, to shrieking Pink Floyd music yeah. <laughs> um, they built a replica of the house right and actually blew it up it was like a scale and replica. film it from like a hundred angles or something I think it was literally 17 they said. yeah like okay 17 cameras right. and they use every angle yeah and then right additionally like on a soundstage somewhere or something he blew up like a refrigerator and a bunch of other stuff yeah and it's fucking so it's beautiful yeah. it's satisfying yeah it's angry it's sublime it's so good um and even if you're not like into abstract filmmaking it's like really fucking cool yeah Um, yeah the ending's right uh and you know yes the actors are wooden i think that's (laughs) kind of well, it's like you said, like the turn on it that it, that people have taken, like everybody, like everybody's like, you think Antonioni didn't know that, you know? Like, yeah, it's, like those are all deliberate choices. Yeah, and it's like it's more how they look and how yeah. they can disappear into a landscape, right. or like how they can be absorbed into this whole thing. They're right. they're not, um, their individual uh, personalities are not what's important here. Right. Um, it is interesting how they were cast. The the guy, Mark <laughs> Frechette. Um, Can I just... Did you happen to glance at the cast notes on the Wikipedia page? Uh, yeah. What, what, go yeah, ahead. I'm just going to read them because like there, there's four here. There's four bullet points under the cast notes. And they go from like mildly interesting to what the fuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, first one, Harrison Ford has an uncredited role as one of the arrested student demonstrators being held inside a Los Angeles police station. Interesting. Yeah, in- interesting. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Frechette who had frequently been arrested, mm-hmm. was first discovered at a bus stop during a verbal confrontation with another man leaning out of the third floor of an apartment building. Antonioni's casting director, Sally Dennison, witnessed the fight and recommended him to the director, noting, he's 20. And, and he, he hates. hates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so good. Uh, <laughs> bullet point the third, uh, Daria Halperin and Mark Frechette fell in love and moved together to Mel Lyman's experimental Fort Hill community. She later was married to Dennis Hopper for four years, as you mentioned. What I'm sure was not a tumultuous marriage at all. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, and bullet point the fourth, uh, along with three other members of the Fort Hill community, Mark Frechette committed a bank robbery in 1973 using a gun with no bullets. He died in prison, supposedly as the result of a weightlifting accident. Yeah, he was only 27 when it happened. Yeah. He gave all of his earnings to the movie, from the movie to this commune. Right. And the bank robbery was allegedly to finance <laughs> a uh, an adaptation of... Crime and Punishment, um, which oh, wow. he thought had a lot of parallels to Life in America, huh. a book I'm currently reading for the first time. Pretty good, as it would turn out. <laughs> cool. Uh, My dad was a big Dostoevsky fan. Yeah. Um, and then, I, yeah, I, think I read somewhere else, too, that he he was saying like it was like a political statement. He said, he's like, this is the only way to actually hurt Richard Nixon or something. Who? Uh, Mark Frechette? Frechette, like oh, the okay. bank robbery. He was yeah. like, this is the only way to actually do damage to the Nixon administration or something. Yeah, uh, a young man who... <laughs> I, th- uh, I think the casting director was right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but very little of that translates to the screen. Like, yeah, he's a good-looking yeah. guy. He looks good on camera. Yeah. Um, I don't know that you feel his passionate anger at all. Right. And maybe uh, that's not the point, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, like the Tao of Steve, this movie has its own theme song. <laughs> um, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, by Roy Orbison. <laughs> yeah, and it's a good one. It's yeah, a very the music good song. overall is great. Oh yeah, they had, like yeah. a bunch of like you said, like a bunch of stuff written for the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pink Floyd stuff. Yeah, the uh, uh, yeah, the, yeah this is one of my favorite Rolling Stone songs. I which, saw it in the credits. Um, she got the silver. Oh yeah, she yeah, got yeah. The silver. Oh. Yeah, I was like, I, I was like, I'm just gonna be waiting for that song to come on. Yeah, <laughs> there, yeah, and the the all the music gets uh, billed in the yeah. in the opening credits as if it's the star of the movie, which in some ways it yeah. is. Um, um, and I've all I've got left is I got a, a quote here from uh, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, a critic I've quoted on the show before, and uh, just kind of helps frame Antonioni for anybody who's like dipping their toe in for the first time. Yeah. Uh, to understand Antonioni's art, we must acknowledge that he is not a storyteller, but a composer slash choreographer of sound and images, which uh, sounds pretentious, but that is uh, as a good way to introduce him is to like, don't go into this movie thinking, oh, this is going to be, you know, a love story about two countercultural kids who right. uh, try to fight the world, but darn it to hell, they can't beat it. Yeah. Um, it's it's more something more uh more abstract and beautiful than that um yeah uh i don't know what do you think is this one dan deep down oh man something about it is it's it might just be a little too like um like emotionally lewd you know like it might it might be a little too hard on its sleeve okay but like i mean certainly like the the frustration with like the modern world yeah, it's very Dan. I I and the music. I mean, like great music too. So that makes it a good fit for the Dan. Yeah, it, although it's impossible to think of Steely Dan being <laughs> music right, alongside and the, Jerry Garcia. Yeah, I mean, Pink Floyd is like not the worst. I I think despite the movie's maybe like ambivalence towards hippies mm-hmm. or like uncertainty about them, I I think it's too. I think it's too hippy dippy for Steely Dan. Like I think it, it's too California, right? Even though it's an Italian's said. conception of California, you know, yeah. a guy who's clearly coming there for the first time and 
kind of like shocked and uh, fascinated by what he sees, which, you know, maybe in that sense, uh, Steely Dan is going through that same thing. I don't know. Yeah, because, yeah, we said like, as we learned, all of the Steely Dan catalog was recorded in California. Yeah. But Um, some of it is very New York. So I guess for me, I'm going to say not, not, not Steely, Steely Dan deep down. Yeah. We, the, the Dan will invite invite it over for a cup of tea, but it will not be allowed to stay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us what you think, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let us know what you thought about it. it is, I mean, it was very interesting to me as, like, to come in cold and be like, well, that was an interesting experience. But like, I didn't have like a strong feeling one way or the other about like, oh, I love that movie or I hate that movie. It was yeah, just, like, it's I, interesting. And then to read that like, it, like everybody just like, Pan the shit out of it. It was like mm. accepted wisdom for, for for thirty years that this is a terrible movie. Yeah, and like now people are starting. You're like, I guess like the last like ten years, fifteen years, people have been like, like, well, hold on a second. Yeah, it's not a movie that I feel incredibly passionate about. I'd seen it once before. Yeah. It's cool to return to it. Yeah, I'd watch it again, but it's you know, it's not. I think he's made better movies for sure. Blow Blow Up is better. Um, yeah, La Ventura. He did a movie with uh, Jack Nicholson called The Passenger, uh, like five years after this. That's yeah. that's fascinating. Um, so he's he's worth looking into. On paper, he should be one of my favorite filmmakers. Yeah. He's, there's just uh, he gets accused of coldness a lot, yeah. which this is in some ways maybe his least cold movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I don't know. He's he can be he's not fun really. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just I found this uh, from the uh, the Slate review from 2009 um, or a Slate essay you're talking about like revisiting it and the, mm-hmm. the, the Slate essay makes the argument for it but this is just like the setup talking about <laughs> uh, he said uh, for Shet the movie's young star plucked from obscurity by Antonioni distanced himself from his director quote I told him he wasn't making a film about any America I knew end quote uh, guitarist John Fahey, one of the musicians summoned to Rome to work on the soundtrack, mm. came to blows with Antonioni when the maestro <laughs> launched into an anti-American rant. Fahey would go on to describe Zabriskie Point as, quote, a really terrible and long skin flick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mm, I like Fahey, but uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wild child. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you, like, what was your read about, like, all the, you know, like the, the, the open theater company in the desert? Um, I wasn't sure exactly what was going I mean, I figured it was, like, expressive, not like, you know, it's not like they were, like, literally people spontaneously appeared in that sex. But then, like, some people's read was that, like, this is, like, the landscape being embodied mm. and, like, rejoicing in the... Uh, That's kind of interesting. In the love of these two young people. Um, I guess I took it as... Um, kind of like they've lost themselves in their in their passionate reverie and like ego has kind of gone away and it's like the ideal of like everybody's connected yeah. i mean that's that sounds corny to say it um but yeah kind of like in in their moment of connection their their sense of individuality in a bad way like they're uh, their ego has melted away and they're they're connected to the land and the landscape and yeah. um something along those lines uh 
There's the, the other piece of trivia around that specific point, though, was like somebody was trying to prosecute the production for, I think, like, I, I mean, they just had some kind of beef or something, but they were trying to go after the production for, I think it was a violation of the Hatch Act or some some law. But like the law is that like uh, it's you know illegal to transport people across state lines for sex work. Mm. That was the law they were trying to use. And it was yeah. like a you know they said like there were no actual sex acts yeah it was all simulated yeah and b they shot in zabriskie point they never crossed the state line yeah it's al- it's also <laughs> they got off on a weird technicality it's also like they're an experimental troop and it's kind of like they're doing like organic movement work yeah. where it's not like some of them aren't even naked they're just kind of rolling yeah. around and it's kind of like this playful childlike but also sexual thing yeah 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 it, it, I don't know. It's an interesting sequence for sure. It's, it's, it's funny to me. It's like served to highlight like a lot of people got weirdly angry about this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, the straight world, man. They yeah. just don't fucking get it. Oh, the other. Yeah. And we forgot to mention the boss played by Rod Taylor. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's true. Who uh, we last saw in his last film role as Winston Churchill in Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Brave him. Yeah. <laughs> He's also in The Birds, right? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a point. Check it it's out. It's a point. Check it out if that sounds like kind of thing. If you don't want to watch people uh, in experimental theater troupe have sex in the <laughs> desert to Jerry Garcia music, um, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel bad for you, honestly. Yeah, and that that ending <laughs> truly cannot overstate it. Yeah, it's it's one of the great great endings in in cinema. Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, it must be clipped on YouTube. I was gonna say if you if you if you're gonna skip both the movies this week, go on YouTube and look for um like search like Dinner Rush, the cooking scene or whatever, the scene where he makes the lobster. Mm. Um, and then uh, let's just look for the end, like uh, the ending of um that was a brisky point. Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the Cliff's notes of this week's real yeah. stealing in the day. And that Roy Orbison uh, track, pretty oh, good yeah. too. Yeah, it's good. Put that on. Yeah. So young, love theme from Zabriskie Point yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah, solid. All right. Cool. Uh, a couple pieces of business. Yeah. Um, uh, first, uh, it is uh, uh, beho- I am beholden to ask you mm-hmm. at this juncture. Yeah. Uh, what is good? Yeah. Oh. There's a lot of good stuff out there. There are signs of life in the culture, people. Nice. But I'm going to limit myself to one movie, one album, and one book, and I'll go. I'll go through them quickly. Uh, the movie is uh, had the chance to catch a screener of uh, uh, this Brazilian movie that's going to hopefully be coming out soon called Bacarau. Okay. Um, it's. Um, Kind of a, a radical political statement, but it also works as just popular cinema um, about a, a community, a rural community in Brazil who fights back against some uh, some Western uh, baddies. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, kind of got like I'll compare it to They Live in part because John Carpenter is is. Uh, Seems to be a guiding spirit in the movie, and also his music shows up at one point. Cool. Um, where it's a movie that um, it's not subtle about what it's saying, yeah. and it says it with such force that you can't deny it. Um, yeah. And it's entertaining as hell. Um, so if you guys get a chance, see Baccarat when that comes out. Cool. Uh, the album is, uh, I think it's from 85. It's this band, The Dentists. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over now. It is now. (laughs) 
or okay some people are on the pitch they think it's all over it is now um uh, this is kind of part of the 80s trend in in britain when bands were uh thrown back to the 60s just a great power pop album cool been, been bumping that and then I read a fucking book, people. Um, <laughs> you did it! Yeah, it was um, maybe 100 pages long, <laughs> and uh, it's called The Fifth Child by uh, Doris Lessing, who's kind of known as like a, a philosophical, uh, I want to say feminist author, but she might be one of those feminist authors who's like, I'm not a feminist. Right. But um, uh, it's about a couple, kind of a conservative couple in Britain who's like you know what we're just going to have as many kids as we can and and you know live the life the the way we want to live it and uh they have four four beautiful children and then they have their fifth child and something's not right with this one <laughs> uh-oh so it's a very quick read slim horror type novel oh, cool. um uh, it struck me as I was reading it, you know, I'm about to be an uncle for the first time. My sister's about to have a kid and I'm cool. like, why did I fucking pick this book <laughs> oh, yeah, <just laughs> about bad, what bad do you do with a bad kid? <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, a great read, somebody who, uh, you know, can, uh, a normal reader could probably knock it out in one or two sittings. It took me a week or two, which for me is pretty quick. So, yeah. uh, the fifth child by Doris Lessing. Cool. Uh, Scott. <laughs> Sir. What's good? <laughs> what is uh, good? Since you asked. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of bouncing around. I don't have anything like super fresh. I was, I hope I haven't done this one. Like there's just one part I know I haven't done one. Maybe I've done before, but I'm going to do it anyway. I have for you two radio stations. Okay. Uh, the the wonders of technology now listen allow us to listen to radio stations from across the world uh, anywhere near uh, and far <laughs> yeah so uh, my two favorite radio stations uh, especially recently um, KUTX uh, which is the music station out of UT Austin uh, I was down in uh, my brother lives in Austin so I've been down there a few times and every time he turns on the radio I'm like god damn this is the best radio station I've ever heard um, and he's like yeah it's KTX so I, I, I stream them all the time I, I like always contribute to their membership drives it's like the best mix I mean it's it's mostly modern you know like rock but I mean like they mix in hip hop and R&B um, and then you know it's like every once in a while, you know because it's like Austin like every once in a while throw in like a Waylon Jennings song and stuff like that and it's like the best mix like I'm never like frustrated with it like God bless Richmond and God bless its radio stations like WRIR like I'm glad it exists but it's so different day to day that like mm. sometimes you're not at all interested and you know sometimes the thing you're interested in is only on for an hour like it's very cool that like that station exists and the people get to do all that stuff but like in terms of like having a reliable like I'm gonna flip it on and I know it's gonna be good. Like mm. KUTX is great. And then a uh, jazz station that I found uh, recently. I just I, I think I literally Googled like what's the best jazz radio station, uh, and the consensus seemed to be WDCB out of Chicago, um, and it's very good. Um, it's not like very avant garde. Like it's mostly pretty digestible stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, DCB out of Chicago. I am personally shocked to learn. That a college radio station in Austin, Texas, <laughs> would yeah. fucking rip, and that there'd be a great jazz station in Chicago. Yeah, I know. Weird. <laughs> but Super weird. No, those sound awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Good um, deal. Uh, one more piece of business before we figure out our homework for next week. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Producer Dakota, what did you learn about Steely Dan this week? Wait, is, are we doing that in the right order? What do you mean? We have this discussion every time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Oh yeah, no. Do we, yeah, I guess sometimes we do our picks first. Yeah, it's it. We're, it we, this is all the, the the back business. I learned that they kind of feel 
the same way about Change of the Guard that I do. Yeah. Like, also, that tells me that I'm kind of learning Steely Dan a little bit. Yeah. Like, I'm figuring out, like, what's the good stuff and what's the other stuff. Yeah. And you are becoming attuned. You are becoming attuned to the Dan. What's your view on the Change of the Guard? Um, just that it's like a, a slightly lesser than some other stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, like, uh, the song. It's. I thought you meant like how change happens. <laughs> oh no, I don't have any opinions on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was getting ready for your uh, 2020 endorsement. <laughs> like I was like, who is he gonna say? Um, we need a moral realist. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds that sounds like those people that say ra- uh, race uh, race they're race realists like I'm not racist I'm a race realist yeah 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 um, I wouldn't trust any candidate as the <laughs> what did you say the moralist a moral realist moral realist yeah um, exactly cool so next week closing out uh, can't buy a thrill although programming note um, uh, our intention going forward is that. When we get to the end of an album, we will do an, al- an episode that is just a recap of the whole album. Yeah. So next week's episode, episode 10, or the next episode that drops, episode 10, will be about um, uh, Turn That Heartbeat Over Again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then episode 11 will be a recap of Camp by a Throne. And we'll, our plan is yeah. we're going to bring in some some other people so it's not just us rehashing what you've already yeah heard about the album but we'll bring in a guest or two to to uh debate the finer points of can't buy a thrill with us yeah but yeah. that being said we do have one more track turn that heartbeat over again mm-hmm. we need a couple of picks to go along with it yeah yeah can you start us off <laughs> <laughs> i can yeah uh i really struggled with this i was like uh it's a tough one yeah i don't i don't want to talk about how i did my math although my math will probably be pretty obvious but like i was trying to I was trying to do this math and i was like what are books blah 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 and i was like I was like, maybe this. And then I like took a look at the cast again. I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, let's do this. So my pick for uh, Turn That Heartbeat Over Again uh, from 2002 from okay. director DJ Caruso, The Sultan Sea. Okay. All right. With Is that Val Kilmer? Yeah, Val Kilmer. All right. The Sultan Sea. The Sultan Sea. Yeah. Unfortunately, not streaming anywhere, but I think it's like three bucks or something. Around. I can find it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. If anybody knows how to set up Plex, help me and Joe set up Plex so that we can like, what is, buy what one. What is Plex? It's like a media server. Okay. It's, you know, like people that get movies that fell off the back of a truck, they use Plex. Okay. <laughs> but it's also, it's great. Like you can share, like if we had a Plex set up, like it's like you could have access to all of my digital movies and oh, okay. uh, it's a cool yeah. thing, but I still haven't seen like a user-friendly guide on how to set it up. So if anybody's a Plex expert, reach out, let us yeah, know. Yeah. A Plex expert. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> there it Jesus is. Jesus Christ. It's right there. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. We're just going to pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> I don't know if I can go on. <laughs> Just tell me your pick. It's going to be okay. Okay. We're do this. Well, you know, I put in a lot of thought on this, and then I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to go with it. This is something that I feel like you might have seen. Uh, it recently came out, past year or two. Okay. Um, it's uh, It's got Robert Pattinson in it, and uh, it's called Good Time. And uh, despite its title... It's not a good. Time. <laughs> is this the one? Is it? Uh, is this the one with the French director set in space? No, that's, that's High Life. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. This is uh, this is two New York filmmakers, the Safdie brothers. They're oh, about to cool, drop cool, cool. Uh, 
a movie with Adam Sandler called Uncut Gems that I'm super stoked for. Me too. Because um, I've recently started watching NBA basketball and it has Kevin uh, Garnett in it. Yeah. And Mike Francesa. Yeah. It's got, yeah, it's going to be a good one, I Looks think. incredible. Um, but Good Time is the movie that they made before this. Cool. Yeah. Uh, stoked. Um, I have not seen it. Okay. It's a wild ride. All right. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Nice. Um, but yeah. So, all Salt right. and Sea. Yeah. Salt good. And sea and good time. I'm writing down Good Time as if. I did not give myself the assignment to watch it again already. (laughs) Um, Sweet. Good deal. Uh, Well, then we will see you all next episode. Yeah. Oh, shit. I feel like I was was like, there's something else we're supposed to say. Uh, No, that's... Did we ask Dakota what he learned? I'm just kidding. <laughs> we did. Next time we'll we'll have our uh, 2020 <laughs> yeah, yeah. endorsements. Stand by for endorsements. Yeah, that's right. Um, we're going to even do, we're going to go state you, by state. Tell all you Iowans what to do in February. Mm-hmm. Get it right this time. They shouldn't get to go first. <laughs> I, hear, I hear Des Moines is lovely. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's a radio station. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now it's over. For <laughs> get out! Get out!